You're tuned into another edition of Pusher Mania's podcast. My name is Matt Sanzala, and this is the Pusher Mania Podcast Network. Today, we're live from the Playhouse with a very special guest, a man who I've been trying to get in here for a long time, and his schedule is finally lined up with ours here. The biggest young rider coming out of Texas, hands down. Ain't nobody touching this boy on the illustrations or on the words. We've got Shea Serrano, y'all. Hello. Hello. <laughs> he he still he speaks with his hands mostly. Shay, though, I'm serious. It's so great to see you here in Austin, man. It's so great to have watched your rise over really not that long of a time, man. Like five, six, seven years you've been like plugging away and you got two books. You're really got a lot of acclaim. Yeah, that's about I feel like you're saying a bunch of that stuff though just because you were the guy who got me put on in the beginning, so like you're invested in this. You don't have to say that even. I'm not invested in nothing. I'm saying it's pretty amazing to see, like, from H-Town. You know it's not easy to make it on that level coming out of Texas. Yeah, it can be a little tricky. It's probably tricky everywhere you start, though, unless you're in New York or L.A., I imagine. But we made it. No, exactly. That's what I'm saying, though. It is tricky anywhere outside of, like, the big media centers, like, to get even just with some of the, the outlets you've been writing for. And then getting to, to publish books about music. I mean, that shit doesn't happen here. That doesn't, you know, we look at our musicians, our rappers and stuff. We don't have the same industry that they have in those places. Yeah, you just sort of, I mean, just writing about Texas rappers in general, you get used to having to do stuff, I guess, by yourself or growing into that ecosystem. So I, I guess you just, you, get, you just learn. You learn or die is, is what it boils down to, I think. Well, this has to be a crazy year for you because you went from teaching... What grade were you teaching? I was teaching eighth grade. Eighth grade at in South Houston. Yeah. Yeah. Eighth grade in South Houston and writing for local papers and then writing for websites and then the Bun B coloring books. We'll talk about that in a minute. But I'm thinking like right now you've got to be in the middle of a, a whirlwind because that the rap yearbook is blown up. Yeah, the, that book changed. Uh, it changed a whole bunch of stuff. It made it a lot easier to talk mainly just to talk to publishers or my editor specifically. She was real mean to me before. And then the book came and did real well, and she's like super nice now. So I appreciate that. <laughs> Tell me about that the concept behind that, though. You basically go year by year and come up with like the biggest song of the year, which you think best represented that year, and, and go into a little backstory. And tell us a little bit about what the book's all about. Yeah, the way the book works is we try to identify what the most important rap song was each year, starting with 1979 and then going up to 2014, which is about when we were finishing up the book and we're just looking for when I say important we're talking about songs that either did something within rap that changed rap forever something like a the example I use all the time is is the breaks with Curtis Blow is the first rap song that had a chorus in it so that's like the most important song of that year because now almost all songs have a chorus in it we were looking for instances like that or situations where a song represented something that was bigger than rap itself and it helped legitimize rap even further and an easy example there would be fight the power by by public enemy we try to find one song like that each year and then we just i just wrote a you know bunch of words about each one that's interesting that you bring up fight the power because i i bring that up sometimes when talking about my youth and coming up with, with hip-hop like that song did change the game, man. Like there was there was conscious rap before that, and there was all kinds of songs with extremely important messages. But when "Fight the Power" came out, we were all like, "Fuck yeah, let's fight the power!" <laughs> yeah, that's the the sense you get, you know. And when that came out, I was just I was like eight years old or something. I didn't hear it 
like really hear it until I was in middle school or something. It was like it, I remember watching that movie uh, do the right thing, and that was like when I connected the piece. Oh, this is what they're talking about, and now seeing it. Um, but yeah, that was a, a big one. What were some of the uh, the songs that were game changers in like the last five or six? Would you say like some of the more recent ones? Because I always say Public Enemy. I was real fortunate to have like Public Enemy and X Clan. KMD. We were just at Waterloo Records and saw the reissue of the KMD Black Bastards album. And I was like, "Damn, it's in like a total box set form." And that rec- that was a record that didn't even come out back then because it was so radical. Mm-hmm. Well, I think when you're looking at stuff that's out now or from the last few years, you're not gonna see any of these big shifts like you did in the beginning of rap, especially with something as as forceful as Public Enemy, because we're so used to like being hit over the head with stuff now that it's not a shock or a surprise anymore. So you're looking for changes that are a little more subtle. You might find something like, like when Drake came along and he made it okay to like rap about your emotions and maybe not like necessarily just okay to do it, but he made it like a successful thing. And when something's a successful thing, that's when people are going to, going to copy it. So you've got stuff like that or, um, if we go to maybe like the last 10 years, 2005 is when Kanye West really showed up and rap was maybe starting to trend back towards gangster rap with 50 Cent and all that stuff. And then he was like, now nah, we're not going to do that anymore. We're going to do this polos and backpack type thing. Um, 2006, you had, that's when Rick Ross showed up and it became like, okay, we can say these crazy things and it doesn't have to be true anymore and it's totally okay. Like that's not a problem now. It used to be a big problem a long time ago. So we you're just trying to find you know those sorts of situations. So crazy too, because thinking about time now, I mean, I know I'm older and, and have kids and all, so time may be moving a little differently than it did when I was in my teens and my twenties. But to me, 2006 seems like yesterday. Yeah, it does. It seems close, and it's weird to say ten years ago. Like, it was was it really ten years ago? I feel old, definitely. It trips me out because I, I interviewed Rick Ross in two, February of 2002 when I was in Miami for one of the first times. And he didn't even have the, the first tape out at that point. And Deuce Poppy, who was working with Slip and Slide and Trick Daddy and Trina, he introduced me to him and was just like kind of telling me he's like, this is this boss, man. He's a big dude out here. He's going to, he's going to do, he's doing music now and blah, blah, blah. And I didn't know anything about him at all. I basically did the basic, like, who are you? Where are you from? Interview with him and for Murder Dog. Yeah, I, I saw him in 2008. He performed at, at Trey Day. And he was like one of the surprise guest people. He just showed up. He did like one verse off of Hustling, and then that was it. But I remember seeing him walk up, and I was surprised that I was surprised by how fat he was in person. I knew he was like a big guy, but he seemed bigger than he was. But he was also like a short guy, which was really, he seems when you see him on a TV or driving the, the white car, he seems like such a big, big, tall intimidating person and then you see him in real life you're like it's just a little fat guy like i get it a lot of famous people are around that height though they got to fit on the tv screens that's by design is that what it is well i feel good then because i'm about his height oh how tall is rick ross he's like five three or he's between five three and five ten somewhere in there which is where i fall so i'm gonna root for him you'll be on tv boy soon enough now you write you started out writing a lot about Houston rap, but you write about sports. You were with Grantland up until the last day, basically. Like, tell me a little bit more about your career as a writer. Uh, all right. Well, yeah, I started out covering Houston, Houston rap, and then like we were talking about this over lunch. Everybody who's listening now, Matt and I went to lunch earlier, and I mentioned this 
to Matt, but I knew when I was trying to like, I knew I wanted to grow out of Houston, just covering Houston stuff. And the way that I, I did that was I was going to copy what you did, which was I want to try to make my name associated with any Houston rap stuff that comes out. I want to cover all of it. That way, when Complex wants to do a thing about Houston rap or MTV does, they're going to say, well, we need to get Shay because Shay already knows everything. So I, I spent a good two or three years at the Houston Press covering all the local rappers and going to as many shows as I could. And, and I don't mean like when Jay-Z would come to Houston. I mean like when Hoodstar Chance has a show in Houston or Dobeezy or Les or D-Lo or Pro, like all of these guys who are just underneath the main names, they have a show. I want to go to that and I want to meet these people and, and look them in the face and write about their music. And <clears throat> I did that for, yeah, two or three years uh, until I had a, a name that was associated with Houston rap. And then I was able to grow out, out from there. And so like you start writing for an MTV or a, or a complex or maybe Rolling Stone or something like that. And then <clears throat> once you've done enough assignments for somebody, you can pitch them on a thing that's not what you've been writing about before. It's it's a lot easier for me to pitch a story about a, I want to write about Bloodsport or whatever. It's easier for me to pitch an editor who I've written for things for already than a person who doesn't know me. So, I mean, that was like a, a thing that you did that I copied and here we are. And here we are today, man. What I really liked, though, when I when I really recognized that you really had something going, especially with your humor, your sense of humor in your writing, was when you took over the Nightfly column for the Houston Press. You did that for a while, didn't you? Where you were covering the nightclubs? Yeah, I did. Well, it was called the Nightfly, wasn't it? it was a night, I did that for like almost four years or something. It was, a, it was a column that ran in the Houston Press. It was a once-weekly thing, three weeks on, one week off, and you would have to go to a nightclub. And you hang out there and talk to people and then you just write, not necessarily a review of the club, but you just write about what was going on in Houston nightlife. And sometimes there were bigger stories you were writing about, like discrimination at a certain place or or if they're tearing down like a, in a an historic club or something like that. But yeah, I did that for, for three years. What's crazy is I, I started that, um, I don't know, like 2008 or something and they called everybody. It was the first time I'd ever been in a writer's meeting. And they called in. There was like five of us in there. It was me. It was a guy who had been writing it prior, right like right before me, and then like three other people. And the editor came in. This woman named Margaret Downing, who was like the super smart, serious. She, she's very intimidating. She's tiny as could be. She's like a tiny little bird, but she's very scary. And she came in, and she was like laying out all the rules for how she wanted the column written. And she said, we're going to take... A compound eye approach I remember she used that term we're gonna take a compound eye approach and one person is gonna write it one week and then another person the next week and then another person the next week so we can have a more rounded view of Houston nightlife and, and I'm sitting there and I'm like okay that makes sense cool but in my head I was like nah fuck these other people like I need I want this to be my thing because number one they paid more because it was in print and number two it was just like that's just how I felt about the situation so I did the first one. I made sure to I emailed the editor as soon as I got home with some ideas for stories I wanted to write. And I did that. And I went out and I was like talking to everybody I could and trying to research all this stuff. And I was just emailing them like every other day. Okay, I want to do the next one. Do the next one, the next one. So the first one came out. And then after me was this other woman. I don't remember her name. She did it one time. And then I got to do it again after that. And then nobody else did it anymore for like the next four years. 
which was I was very proud of that. And that was a, a very helpful thing because you have to learn how to talk to people. You have to learn how to report on a story. And that was what I spent most of that time doing with Margaret or with Chris Gray, who was the editor there. He's still the editor now. Like They were really the ones who taught me how to write a thing. And once I was able to do the print stuff for that column, then they let me do like cover stories. And then on the internet, they just let me basically write about any of the stuff I, I wanted to. So that was super helpful. Right. But with the Nightfly, you weren't just going to like a hip hop show or to a, you know, a Montrose club. Like you were covering the city. Like you were going into country bars and all kinds of crazy stuff, weren't you? Yeah. Any, any club where something interesting I thought was happening, it didn't matter what it was. Um, the first one I went to was like a piano bar that I just opened up. Uh, but yeah, it like over that four year stretch, I probably went to nearly every single club in Houston that was open during that time period. So I was there when like Washington Corridor exploded and that was all the new hotspot um, or when downtown sort of folded in on itself or, you know, you're watching all these things go up and down. Yeah, it was it was any club that was there. It didn't matter. White club, black, black, black club, Asian club, gay clubs like you just go in there and find whatever the interesting story is what was the wildest one you went to do you have an interesting story you can remember from just one of the craziest nights you spent in one of these venues uh no you know i always wanted to see a a fight in a bar i went to a couple country bars i thought like this will be the spot like some roadhouse shit it never happened though i think the craziest one that i did was was the it was right after a a, a trade day again it was when those guys drove by and they like shot up the place and they were doing an after party at the Roxy or something, which is like a Houston institution and, and nightclubs, just trashy nightclubs. But I went there and it was just super hectic because everyone was trying to figure out what had happened and we're, everyone was trying to find Trey and make sure like who got hurt or didn't get hurt. And it was just a really weird time to be in a club trying to talk to a, a person. I remember I was trying to find somebody who was who had like seen something. So I'm talking to everybody in there and I, I ran up on, it was like two strippers who were there just in their normal clothes. I didn't know they were strippers at the time, but I'm telling them who I was in the pay. And I have like a little card on my name on it. And she's like, I gave it to one of the ladies and she looks at it. And she's like, Oh, the Houston press. Like, I know y'all, I bought my stripper pole off of the, off of your classifieds or some crazy shit like that. Uh, which I thought was super funny, but that was a, that was definitely the weirdest one. Or the most like frenetic one you never saw fights in the clubs in Houston I didn't I always wanted to and I was like trying to position myself to be around one when it would happen and it just never did back in the late 80s early 90s going to places like the Palladium and the underground like the places that preceded the Roxy there wasn't really a Friday or Saturday that you could go there that didn't get fights shootouts in the parking lot people getting run over by cars like people parking people into to like backs in front of walls and shit like <laughs> that was non-stop i always i always missed it you know which one i really liked i went to club rhythms that reggae club and i talked to the owner there who had been there forever and he was probably like my favorite person to interview just because he had all of these great stories about like all the local rappers who had started out there or were like selling tapes in the parking lot he was telling me like that's where spm first started and all like he just had these great story and they also have these weird pictures painted on the wall of different jamaican icons but then there's like a snoop one in there and it's like what what is i don't understand what's going on but yeah that was a that was a fun a fun column i was glad when it when it finished though i was glad to stop going to the clubs yeah 
don't blame you. Is Rhythm still open? I probably it'll probably never ever close yeah. ever. That was the shit though back southwest side those days. All the clubs, a lot of them were down there, and Rhythms like, like the reggae ones seem to survive. I don't know why, man, but the, back in the in the day, did you ever go to any of the places on the like the reggae spots on the southwest side that weren't clubs that were like old grocery stores where they just opened that shit up and had like buckets full they had like garbage cans full of guinness yeah i went to oh, i don't even remember the name of it but I I, name. yeah i remember just showing up and it was like it's a bodega during the day and at night they just moved all the stuff to the side and turned the music on and there you go have a have a good time the reggae bodega on almeda i think that was probably it yeah Oh man, yeah, they they're still a bodega. They're still a store during the day, and they would do underground shows <laughs> on uh on Fridays, especially Fridays and Saturdays for a minute. A lot of local groups. But these ones were like on the southwest side, like deep off Brazewood and out there and shit in just old abandoned big or maybe not abandoned, but just big ass buildings that were at one time probably a grocery store or something. And they would just have Capleton and Mighty Crown from Japan or something in there just going off. It was this shit was crazy. Yeah, those are those are a lot of fun. I'm trying to remember the name of one. It was like a a tiny little blues place in a it was in a neighborhood in somebody's like the side addition to a house and you had to pay two dollars to get in and you and you walk in. It doesn't look like anything when you're parking and then you walk in and it's just packed with people and like this band somehow tucked in the corner like when you find little things like that it's really those were always my favorite moments i didn't want to go to the main the main new club or whatever like i want to find all the cool old shit and that's what they you know they let you do that there so that was neat so from where from there you did a lot you got with a lot more outlets but you ended up doing a coloring book with bun b can you give me a little bit of background on how that came about was that your concept uh, yeah, the concept was mine. Uh, Bun was the one who wanted to do the book, though. When I had I've been writing at the time for a couple of years already in Houston, and if you write about music for long enough, or if you just are a writer in Houston, or you live in Houston long enough, you're gonna run into Bun B, and he's like, it's crazy how smart he is, and not just like a, in a, an intelligent thing, but like I met him maybe one time, and then he just knew who I was after that sort of situation. He just doesn't forget things. And so I, I had talked to him a couple of times with different interviews on the phone and never thought anything of it. And I was at work one day, this is when I was teaching, and I always had my phone off. I don't want to be on Twitter or whatever during class. But I get I, te- I turn my phone on and I got messages. And one of them I'm listening to is from Bun. I don't know how he got my number, but he had it. And <clears throat> he's like, yo, this is Bun. I got an idea. I want to do a book. Let me know if you're interested. Don't call me back today. Like, that was, like, the coolest shit I ever heard. When he said, don't call me today. Talk to your wife. It's going to be a big thing. So let me know if you want to do it. And I was like, oh, fuck. Like, this is Bun B. This is the guy from... I'm writing Dirty. It's one of my favorite albums of all time. I've, I've heard it a hundred times. And I've listened to all the UGK stuff. Like, you get this phone call, and it's just a crazy situation. And so I, I called him back the next day, and I told him, yeah, let's... I thought he wanted to do, like, a UGK book or something serious like that. And we went and had lunch. And he was telling me, no, I don't, I want to do like a funny book. I don't know what I want to do yet, but let's come up with some ideas. And we're going back and forth about, I think the first thing we were going to do was some sort of survival guide, like a rap survival guide type shit. And I just couldn't make it work to where I thought it was going to be interesting. And <clears throat> I was playing with my kids one day and I just drawn some pictures of, again, some of the guys who I was covering in Houston, like Dobeezy or Cab the Don or these guys. I draw like a cartoon of them and then took a picture of my phone and put it on Twitter and it 
whatever I got, you know, oh, that's funny, blah, blah, blah. And I did that a couple of times and I said, well, let me try to do it with a famous rapper and maybe more people will will grab onto this. And then I had, that's when I had the, the thought to do the coloring book. And so I hit a bun thinking he was going to shut that shit down real quick. And I told him what it was and he's like, yeah, let's give it a try. So I downloaded Adobe Illustrator on my computer. You can get it for like $30 a month, mm-hmm. like a rented version. And I, I figured out how to draw, make the cartoon pages, how to draw the stuff in there. I did two or three of them. I sent them to him and I said, this is what I want it to look like. And he's like, cool, let's give it a try. And I started a Tumblr, posted them on the Tumblr. The Tumblr went viral like a week later. And a publisher in New York from Abrams uh, Publishing, Abrams Books, they saw it on like New York Magazine or whatever. And they hit me up and they asked, if we, you know, you want to turn this into a book? We had a couple of different people come who wanted to do it. And I liked them the most. They had done a bunch of art books already. <clears throat> and so we just did the fucking we did the book. There you go. Was there any resistance to that? Like did you did you have to like license all those images from the rappers or was this something that you could just is that like some your own work, like a photograph? No, you have to well you don't you're supposed to get permission. Most of the other coloring books that they've got stuff in there, like you see them at Urban Outfitters or whatever, um, they don't they just will do it and you publish them. You could self publish them or you get a little publisher to do it and they don't worry about it. But Abrams is like they're a, a legit they do Diary of a Wimpy Kid. Like, they do these big books. They have money. And if somebody wants to sue you for using their image without permission, then they can do that. So they said we have to get permission. When I, and when I talked to Bun, he said the same thing. He's like, I don't want to do... I don't want to just throw a person in there without asking if they want to be in it. Like, that's not the type of, type of person Bun is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, we got everybody who was in there. They signed a paper. They We had to get their permission to use their, their image. Um it was a fucking total nightmare and headache. Like, it's not that easy to email Drake. It doesn't happen quickly. Or Wiz Khalifa, these guys, you've got to go through uh, got his manager, and then you've got to go through their lawyers, and then Wiz has got to see it, and they've all got to sign off on it, and you've got to make these changes. Like, it was, an, it was a nightmare. Um, it wasn't that much fun to do. It took, like, six months to get all the paperwork done. It took me a week to draw all the stuff in the book. I did it, I did it over spring break. One week, boom, done. And then the rest of the time was getting the paper, the paperwork signed. Um, it wasn't, it wasn't fun at all. No. Did anybody say no? Uh, I think we had like one person who said no, just because they didn't like the picture. I was trying to do like an old picture of Vanilla Ice. They wanted. I said, Hey, you want to be in the book? He said, Yeah, we, this is a great idea. And I, I drew a, like a, a practice one and I sent it to him. It was this old picture where he had on that American flag jacket with the lines in his head and the big hair and everything. And I said, this is the picture we want to use. What do you think of this? And he said, no, I want a new picture of me today. And I was like, you're not Vanilla Ice today. Like you're the guy from the HGTV or whatever. That's you, you're, you're him now. And, but I drew the picture and we had it and it just didn't look like, I mean, it looked like Vanilla Ice, but it wasn't Vanilla Ice. You know what I'm saying? And so we ended up not, not doing that one. Um, but I think everybody else we asked, they were like all for it. Anybody we could get in contact with, mm-hmm. you know, I didn't get in contact with fucking Jay Z or whatever. Right. Did putting that book out open up a lot of doors for you? It did. What ended up changing the most from that was I had no idea. I never even considered pairing up drawing pictures um, or doing any sort of illustration with the writing that I was doing. Like I didn't know that that was a thing people wanted to to do. 
or wanted to see done. But after the book came out, MTV hit me up and asked me to draw some stuff for him or XXL asked me to draw Two Chains girlfriend. They're like, listen to Two Chains album for any time he talks about a girl and then just make it into a girl, like draw that. And we, I got to do like a bunch of cool shit like that. Um, and that was really helpful. Um, that's mainly how that book ended up changing things. Yeah. Were you always an illustrator though? Was that something, was that always something you did for fun or did you think that you could turn that into a career? I, I've, I've known how to draw since I was little. Yeah. My dad is, is really good at it. Mostly I can just do cartoons and stuff. Um, but no, I, I, it was not like a thing I wanted to do with my life. I didn't want to be a, it's just a thing I did for fun until I figured out I could make money at it. And then I was like, well, this is definitely better than not money. So now, what about writing though? So you said you were drawing since you were a kid. Was writing always a passion of yours? Was this something? Did you go to school for any of this? <laughs> no, I didn't have any experience at all with writing. We we ended up. My wife and I ended up in a situation where we she wasn't working because she was uh, she had gotten pregnant and she was on bed rest. She couldn't go to work. And I was a teacher, and we had the twins coming. And teacher salary is not enough to pay for a family of four, so we needed extra money. I was trying to find other jobs as like a waiter or stocking at the grocery store. But each time I would apply, they would say, well, you already have a full-time job, and we, we need somebody who we can call when we need them um, so we can't hire you. So I was literally just at home Googling work-from-home jobs, and writer was one of them. And then I was like, fuck it, I'm a writer now. And there we go. Let me start calling some people. So you really that you just said I'm gonna just become a writer. You didn't have any like inclination already, like okay, this, I can do this because you're not a simple writer, man. You you've got a voice, you've got you're a very unique uh, voice in this. Yeah, it wasn't anything that I had thought about. I think a lot of people have this this picture in their head, this like romantic idea of you're sitting, like you're chasing down your dream. You're wearing a black turtleneck with your laptop in the coffee shop. Or whatever but that wasn't like a thing I wanted to do or had any interest and in. I didn't like writing it wasn't something that I just thought about all the time I just needed a job that I could do and writing was a I had a computer I had an internet connection like that's really all you need is that and and some sort of talent at figuring out what email addresses people have to get in contact with them um, but yeah like when I called you I still remember when I called you I found your I was a Googling DJ screw because I didn't know very much about him. I'd only been in Houston for a little while. Uh, he, he hadn't, like in my group in San Antonio, he hadn't like infiltrated that group. I had never heard of him until I got to, to college. And I was like trying to cover that they were doing a festival for DJ screw at the time, the screw fest. And that was, as an aside, that was my uh, second daughter, Elena's first concert. Was it really? Yeah. That's awesome. Um, but yeah, so they were doing a screw fest. And I called, I called the people who were in charge of that. I found a number on their site, and I said, hey, I'm with a newspaper. Can I have a press pass? They didn't even ask what newspaper I was with. They didn't ask any questions at all because nobody else had asked to cover it. They just gave me one. And I wasn't with anybody at the time. I, my idea was I'm going to get a press pass. I'm going to go to it. I'm going to write a story, and then I'm going to try to give that to somebody else, which is totally backwards. I know now. I didn't know at the time, but I, so I got the press pass and I'm Googling again, like trying to learn about DJ screw. And I came across Houston. So real, your old blog spot. And I was reading all the stuff you're writing and looking at all the pictures and trying to just trying to figure things out. And it had your contact, like your email address or something on there. 
So I said, well, let me email this guy because he seems to know everything. And I emailed you and <clears throat> I asked if we could, I could interview you. I didn't have any reason to, but uh, I asked and you said, yeah. And then I called you. I was sitting in my, my kid's room. They were like six weeks old or some shit like that. And I asked you maybe two questions about DJ Screw and then we talked for maybe an hour about just becoming a writer. How do I do this is what the conversation turned into. And you were basically telling me all the stuff I needed to hear. And so I just started doing that. And I said, well, if this guy's going to talk to me, like maybe I can get other people too as well because you're important and let me find some other people who are on your, who maybe know you or there you go. And that's how it works, man. You just got to do it. Yeah, that's what I tell everybody too. I talked to some students at UT last week and it was just like, you just have to do it. And that's really the biggest obstacle, especially in any independent business, but in this music business and then, you know, these guys want help. These newspapers want content. They want that, and you just have to go for it. I remember, though, because I was friends with the editors at the Houston Press when we had first talked, and you're like, man, they won't even answer me. And I was like, I remember that those days for me, too, those motherfuckers. And I just basically hit them up sort of like that. I was like, dudes, man, there's a dude who's obviously smart, trying to get a hold of you. You don't even answer him. What's wrong with you? You don't even have anybody writing about rap right now. You need this guy. You need somebody to come in. I was just gave him some shit, and you called me the next day and said they called. Yeah, that was – that's – I mean, that's how it worked. And – if I had not called you, they probably still would have never responded to my email. Like, that's just, you just keep going. Eventually you get in. It gets to that point, though. I mean, from working with South by Southwest and, and some of the jobs I've done, like, I definitely can't take every rapper call that I get or every email with every song and CD. Like, I can't just listen to every single thing that comes at me and respond. And I'm sure that's probably getting, you're getting to that point to an extent, too. Uh, no, nah, I don't think I'm that popular yet. Not yet. <laughs> Nobody has your number. Well, that's true as well. Only like four people have my phone number. Um, but yeah, man, I mean, we we did that. I talked to you and I started at, after that. I got a, an assignment from Houston Press and then it was up to me to like keep going at it. And the first thing I wrote for them, I don't even think they ran it. It ended up being some conflict. I pitched them a story about covering a, some local show and I went to it and I wrote all about it. And then it turned out that the show was being put on by the Houston Chronicle. And the Houston Press was like, no, we can't cover this anymore, but let's try you on another thing sort of situation. And I was just, you know, pitch them every day, pitch them every day until I got on. And there you go. Man, what the hell show did the Houston Chronicle put on? What was that? It was something called like the Hometown Showdown or something. Oh, yeah. But uh, that's where like there was a group called Lower Life Form. You remember Lower yeah. Life Form? Okay, so they were like one of the main people on the show, which is like they're not even very big, but they're the main ones on, on them. There were maybe eight groups on there. So what, what I did is I wanted to, like I don't know any of these people or any of their music, but I need to know what I felt like. I don't want to just write some bullshit. So I try to get in contact with everybody that I could who I found on the bill. Like I'm trying to find them on MySpace or uh, websites or whatever. And I, I found them through MySpace and I contacted um this guy named Ish, mm -hmm. and I told him who I was, and I was like, hey, I'm coming to your show next week, and I'm covering it for the Houston Press, and they invited me out to the, they were having like a house party that night, and so I went out there, and I met everybody, and I was talking and just hanging out, and it was like, it was cool in that, like, I'm not, I don't drink or anything, but it was just cool to meet these people who I was going to go watch later on, and it was, it was helpful to me to see how open these people were to, like, being heard. You know, like these guys, these guys are out here working hard and they're trying to make this music that they think is good and they want to talk to you about it. So 
if you're a writer, you should take advantage of that opportunity and like meet these people. And I went and I hung out with them. And then I like, I probably did 25 hours of research for this one little concert review that they were going to pay me $20 for at the time. But like, that's the sort of thing you had to do. I felt like I had to do in the beginning. I needed to know all this information. I was trying to catch up, but, uh, that's what it is. It's true. The lower life form had kind of their own scene in Houston at that time. And, and we were just talking about that group, the Chaotics, who were early hip hop group from Houston in the 90s who just put out another album on vinyl even in the last month or so. And it's like, that's always been a struggle because the Houston sound is the Houston sound. And like Rap-A-Lot before that was really dominant. And that was, you know, those the independent street sounds from Houston always kind of dominated the more quote unquote hip hoppy sounds like lower life form. Do you know that part of the lower life form uh horn section is now the suffers horn section i did not know that i did not have any idea about that lower life form was good though Mm -hmm. i I missed those guys i ran into to jamie one of the guys in the group at like the grocery store it was so weird to see him i was i had only ever seen him performing and then he was like there with his kid or something buying turkey um but yeah uh that's the thing that i whenever i'm talking to any of these new writers who have questions who email me or whatever like that's one of the main things i try to tell them is when you're first getting on you should pitch local stories to local papers and that's an easy way to like get in the game and you got to do what you got to do i mean lots of people intern to get into their jobs doctors intern to become legit doctors you know like you have to put in your time to go out and do that and one of the things i've seen in houston rap that's held some of the artists back is like you know we all want to get paid for what we do, but really we're all the same when we're just starting out. We've got to prove ourselves. And you see rappers who are like, man, I ain't doing that shit unless I get this amount of money. And you're like, dude, you don't bring any crowd in, man. You know, and you talk about a group like Lower Life Forum who weren't doing a thousand people a night, but if they could do two, three hundred a night at 10 bucks a head, they were making some money, you know, and a lot of people didn't see it, you know, the grind it took to get to that point. Yeah, it's, it's not an easy thing. Um, it's not an easy thing to... I think to figure out is the main part. There's so many little steps you have to make. So many times you can just like fuck everything up. Um, but I think that's part of it too is like I've been told no more times than I've been told yes. You just keep going into uh, you just need one yes and then and then you're in. So that's that's the thing that I think most people need to hear. Like a snowball running down a hill, man. What um what's next for you? Tell me what you got coming up and I mean, you said you quit. You're not teaching at the moment. You're a full-time writer. Yeah, I ended up. I joined. Uh, I, I signed up with Grantland. This was maybe like a little over a year ago, and uh, I was part-time there, and I really liked it, and all the people were super cool. So I went on full-time, and uh, <clears throat> so I, I was doing that, and then of course Grantland shut down. Um, so right now, I'm just. I got a new book that I'm working on, but it's two years away type of situation i mean a year to write it a year to get everything ready to to promote it so right now that's mainly what i'm what i'm doing and sitting on a couch in austin talking into a microphone and speaking at universities and little things like that too oh yeah well that's why i'm out here yeah Yeah. for that which is cool like i was riding like they send you a car to your house and they pick you up and then you fly on your airplane and you get to the airport and there's a person holding a sign with your name on it and then they put you in another like it's crazy to me that people do that just because they think you're good at at writing like shit changed a lot from doing 20 dollar concert reviews that would eat up you know five hours of time 
to to now when you get paid x amount of money and you go fly to a city and talk to some people and hang out and then you're done <laughs> like that's crazy man well it's huge man it's well deserved too i'm definitely glad that uh, you were able to make some time here to talk to us here on the podcast man uh if young rappers want to get in touch with you and all that and they want you to make them their own personal coloring book or something like that you want to put your phone number in here any contact information i know you probably want to get that out there worldwide not just houston guys calling you yeah hit me up it's um matt sanzala at gmail.com just send me all of your stuff and i'll get i'll take it out oh yeah it'll be right right there you're gonna blow up too if you you hit that email address you're definitely gonna blow up for sure Man, I definitely appreciate you giving us the time here, man, and I wish you a lot of luck, and I definitely hope you hit us up anytime you're here in Austin, and we'll look forward to seeing your byline a lot more places in the uh, weeks, months, and years to come, brother. I appreciate you, man. No doubt you're tuned in to Pusher Mania's podcast. This is the Pusher Mania Podcast Network. Get with us on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and wherever else podcasts are found. It's also PusherMania.com. And we'd love to hear from you. It's matt at pushermania.com. Hit me up. And until next time.